You're listening to the Common Grace Podcast, stories of common grace and common people for the common good. Today on Common Grace, we talk with Sean Robinson. Sean spent 20 years as an investigative reporter for the Tacoma News Tribune before moving into an editing role. His body of work includes award-winning coverage related to criminal justice, government accountability, and public disclosure. We discuss the importance and the pitfalls of news today on both the local and national level. What happens when we combine our faith and our political opinions, or when we buy into a political ideology and let it shape us? Are we willing to listen and have a posture of curiosity? Let's learn together why it's critical to stay informed and why memes might not be the most accurate news source. I want to welcome Sean Robinson from the Tacoma News Tribune to the podcast. Sean, thanks for joining us. You're most welcome. Glad to be here. So I just want to jump right into things. I just think this is going to be a really fascinating and I think enlightening interview. And so I'm really excited about it. But uh, when I was learning about just a little bit of your background in journalism, you're, you're known for working in criminal justice, government accountability, public disclosure. And so it's just your background was really fascinating to me. So I wanted to start with maybe where it all started, how you got, how you got interested and into journalism. Well, um, it's a family thing. I come from a family of journalists. My grandfather, who uh, died in 2014, was a publisher of local weekly newspapers in this region going all the way back to the 40s and 50s. So he published the White Center News, Highline Times, West Seattle Herald, Federal Way News, and uh, Des Moines News, which are still, the chain is still kind of alive in in a sort of different guise primarily online. My, my uncles took charge of it and recently made the difficult decision to stop making printed copies that are still online. My dad worked at those papers, was the editor and columnist there for a long time. I started at those papers in 89, coming out of college. That was not my intended career, but uh, it was sort of like uh, I don't know, just when I thought it was out, they pulled me back in kind of a thing. <laughs> Couldn't really get away from it. My mom, when I was a, a sprout, was also a journalist who worked for United Press International, which is the, it, it doesn't really exist much anymore, but it's the same thing as uh, the Associated Press, a wire service. She worked for papers in throughout the state of Oregon and then um, the East Coast and uh, covered state politics in Oregon. So I started in community and weekly and local journalism, covering local city government and the city of Federal Way and all those things. Did that for a while and also wrote about um, fine arts because that's where my degrees are. I'm a theater major. But I gradually found and editors gradually found that I had a knack for investigating. So when I came to the TNT, I started covering criminal justice and public officials and public disclosure and transparency and uh, wrote about a lot of uh, murder and mayhem and um, a lot of things like that. And I did that from 2000 to 2019, took a hiatus, I guess I would say, from about 2010, I've been also teaching communication writing at Pacific Lutheran University. Uh, and advising student media there, which I still do. But I came back to the News Tribune in last year as the night and sports editor, which is a different role, but still a lot of work, but maybe not quite so stressful. Working in investigative criminal justice world just exposes you to a lot of just bad stuff, just people being really, really bad to each other. I covered a lot of murder, serial killers, corrupt cops, Lots of stuff like that. And it, it wears on you. So I needed to uh, step away from that and move into a more of an editing oversight role now that I'm a little older. So that's what I'm doing now while also uh, continuing to teach at PLU and I'm having a good time. What do you think is really important or what do you wish people really understood about journalism and its contribution to society, to a community? Why is it so important? I guess the thing would be, you know, you hear journalist or reporter, we're just people. We just live here. You know, we're all working and, and, and grinding and, and doing the same things that other people who live around here are doing. I have lived in this region since 1980, raised my family here. My siblings, my parents are here. 
this is where I live. This is, you know, what I love. And I can't speak to CNN or Fox or MSNBC or those places because that stuff doesn't really interest me. And I, I don't, I don't really think of it as journalism, although I think people think of the media when they think of it, that's what they think of. They think it's Anderson Cooper and, and Tucker Carlson. And, you know, that's not the media. I understand that it's hard to get away from it, but there's a lot more of us who are just kind of muddling their way through getting along and doing their thing in communities around this country. That leads to one question I am interested in learning more about is how would you define the difference between local and national media and why should people care? I'll answer the second question first. I think they should care because one of the things that has happened in this digital revolution that has taken place is what some people call the nationalization of media. And that's a great big sloppy term. I can tell you that I think it's bad because it corresponds to a hollowing out at the local level of all the local media outlets that everyone who's over 30 grew up with. And what's happened is these big outlets combined with the turbocharging effect of the internet combined with social media have kind of turned everything into this intense national political debate about everything. And I think people are worn out by that in a certain way. So at the national level, and by national, I'm going to say these cable, cable outlets, number one, and then publications like the New York Times, Washington Post, which are uh, what we call, I mean, they're newspapers, uh, but the term now is legacy media. Those are the big ones. But even then, there's a difference between a newspaper, whether it's an online newspaper or a uh, printed newspaper, and a cable channel. The nationalization effect means that everything, whether we recognize it or not, is kind of filtered through this national lens, even though I happen to think most of us aren't thinking about national politics all the time. I think it's like, oh, I got to go to the store. You know, I'm out of cheese. <laughs> I need to go and, you know, I, I need to go get some coffee. You know, I, I want to go to the soccer game or, or whatever. I think people's day-to-day -day concerns are not about that. But the nationalization effect is built on this thing that's sometimes called the attention economy. Mm. And that is whatever we can do, whatever platform, so to speak, we're on, whether it's a news organization or TV or radio or a podcast or any of these kinds of things, it's about we need to keep you here. Keep you here. Get your attention. Your attention is what we crave. And that is almost, I'm going to sound kind of grim here when I say this, but, the, but the, there is a drug-like quality to that. And I think sometimes we are all prone to it. Like I'm sitting here looking at my phone. You know, I, I have four or five email accounts. I have a text account. I'm on two different Slack channels. I have emails from my teaching job. I have emails from my newspaper job. And it's this barrage that's just coming at me all the time. And I, and I am, you know, that's my job. So it's different for people who's, you know, who have different jobs. You know, if you're just going out and cutting the lawn or something, maybe it's not as intense. But I think because of this attention economy thing, everybody is being encourage sort of to to mainline it to you know eyeballs constant and i think that's bad sorry that was a very long answer i uh, man i think you're you're resonating probably with some people when you're when you're sharing this and you know whole industries are being impacted by this new shift what you're calling this attention economy and i know you know journalism's been really impacted by how you you know the mediums by which you you put your information out and how you gain readers how you connect with your readers or listeners with the attention economy and the effect of social media on our habits how do you see that affecting like our information diet return with me to yesteryear to early 2000s or or pre-internet information we had cable TV. We had most of the technological comforts we have now. 
But if you wanted to get a story into the newspaper, let's say, or you wanted to write a letter to the editor, you had to get through a couple of doors. And those doors are known as what we now call curating. The first door was usually, are you civil? Are you basically somewhere close to normal? Okay, well, we can talk. But are you screaming? Are you writing 20,000 word emails, single spaced in all caps? Are you walking around with a sign that says the end is near? And any one of those things might cause a grizzled editor to say, okay, well, we're not talking to you. We're going to talk to the, to the normal person next to you. And it doesn't really matter that you're yelling or that you're saying you're being suppressed. You're a jerk. And we're not doing that. The same thing would be at public meetings where somebody goes to a public meeting to say, uh, members of the council, we'd like to say that we're unhappy with this fireworks ban or whatever. And they'll say, okay, thank you for your comment. Your comment is noted. Thank you. But if the next person comes up and says, you're all Nazis, you know, it, it's like, okay, we're not doing this with you. All right. And one of the things that's happened is that we've shifted things where people who do all of the most outrageous, loud, annoying things that would normally get you shunned at a picnic, get all the attention. And that's a, I'm going to call it a perverse effect of the information economy, that if you do the most outrageous thing, you get the most attention. Whereas before the incentives were, all right, can you play nice? Can you play well with others? Okay, then we can, then, then we can talk. But now what's happened is, I'm simplifying this because, but it goes in a lot of places. It's in Facebook comments, it's in news story comments, it's in YouTube comments and all of these other places where maybe 20 people are trying to say, well, I really like that movie. That's a really good video. I, that's pretty interesting. And then someone else says, ah, you're fat, you know? And it's like, oh, and then everybody gets pissed. And the conversation becomes about the loudest voice in the room. And that's what the term troll and trolling comes from. People who are seeking attention by being outrageous tend to get the attention because the information ecosystem rewards that. And that's bad. I mean, I say, I think that's bad. There seems to be like some gaps in etiquette, public discourse, civic, you know, charity toward one another and dis yeah. being able to disagree with charity. And it seems to like the lowest denominator, if I'm hearing right, the lowest denominator is beginning to lead the conversation or gain the attention. Whereas before various kind of natural barriers, nobody was standing guard before. It was just, okay, well, it's a playground. Either you play by the rules that everybody else is playing by, or you don't. You know, you, you don't pick a fight with grandma. You do that in most social settings and you get to leave. That's what you get to do. But we've flipped it. We've flipped it in some strange ways, not just journalism, but the entire way we communicate with one another. I, because I'm working with 20 somethings a lot and you know, people right at the cusp of adulthood, as well as young reporters, it's sort of amazing sometimes when I realize sometimes that they are really afraid of actually talking to other people you know, just having face-to-face -face conversations. Well, can't I just send an email? No, I'm sorry. You have to talk to this person. We need that statement. I don't really want to call them. Look, this is the gig. <laughs> you have to be able to do this. That's a, a strange 21st century phenomenon to me. So there's cultural, historic, social norms that have shifted tremendously. Some of like the social ethics <laughs> or boundaries are still behind. And so the ecosystem shifted. Here's a question for you. How do you find information you can trust in that ecosystem? How do you help friends and family? How would you share that with friends and family? Help them find information they can trust? Well, I try to guide them toward, I don't want to say neutral sources because neutral is the wrong word, but legitimate journalism organizations do attempt to verify information. And there's 
multiple sets of eyes that look at a story and say, okay, you know, did this really happen? Is, is a body really buried there? No, no, no. I think we maybe we just hold off here and not say that until we know. So I will point people toward, again, what I will refer to as legitimate journalistic organizations. And there's a hierarchy. So if it's a local story, I'm not going to point them to a national outlet. I'm not going to point someone to read the Washington Post when it's a story about Tacoma. Now, if it's a story about politics in D.C., maybe I will say go read the Washington Post or the New York Times because they have people who are covering that. But if they're parachuting in here to take advantage of something wild that happened here, I'm going to say go local. And part of the navigation and guidance involves established brands, if you will. If there's a news organization that's been around for a long time and has continued to provide, and even if you don't like it, even if you think they're liberal scum and uh, you know they're, they're a rag and they're biased or whatever, they've been around. They do have editors like me, and I, I supervise reporters, and they did send someone to the basketball game or the football game to cover it, and they sent a photographer to take pictures of the football game so they're real. That's kind of the first line of defense. Conversely, you will have, I don't want to be disrespectful of alternative news sites and, and, and blogs and social media sites and all those things, but if you can't find any real people in the whatever story it is you're spreading, there's no byline, there's no one to contact, there's no one to call, then they're probably not legit. They're probably just stealing your attention. And this is much more prevalent now than it used to be because it doesn't take as many resources to just set up a site and call yourself Puyallup Scandal. And my, I'm anonymous, I'm anonymous, I'm anonymous, and I'm giving you all the secrets. That should be a red flag. That's one way to sift the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff. The other way is to understand that all of us, and this is um, across the political spectrum, we are all prone to narrative addiction. We want to believe what we want to believe. And if we see something that tells us what we want to hear, there's going to be an instinctive, yeah, 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 that's right. Stick it to those uh, conservatives or kick the heck out of those liberals. Uh, I love it. I want more. If your preferred view of the world is being fed, then be skeptical because you might be getting conned. Are you just telling me what I want to hear so I'll buy this vacuum cleaner? You know, think about it that way. So how do you personally prevent yourself from narrative addiction? And how do you how do you encourage others to prevent themselves from kind of falling prey to that or just getting sucked into that? It's hard. One of the things that helped me was covering a lot of crime, a lot of crime. In addition to big investigative projects, I would also write basic police blotter stories. And there's, there's one particular investigation we'll get to later that I think is uh, relevant here. The main thing is I might go find a police report. I'm going off the police report. Police report says uh, a 78-year-old grandma called 911 to say someone had stolen her money. And Officer Smith goes and talks to grandma who says, well, this person called me and said they were stranded in Ecuador with my grandchild and they just needed money to get out. And they told me to go to Western Union at the Rite Aid and just get a bunch of gift cards and send, send them the numbers. So I did it. And the officer will be like, ma'am, I'm sorry, but you just got scammed and there's no way to trace it. And there's no way to get the person who did it because that person fooled you. And this happens to seniors a lot. And I, I would see those kinds of stories and say, okay, how can I put this? I want to be a good person. I want to help other people. I want to be nice. But I literally got a scam call a week ago. And there's a voice on the other end that's unintelligible. Young, I think it was female. And I'm like, okay, hello, hello. I don't, you know, what is this? I don't know who it is. Another voice gets on the line and says, hello, uh, this is the police department. We need to know if you're ready to come down and pick up your relative. And I'm like, let me give you two, two small words. Bye. I'm done. But it's because I've seen it so much. 
that I'm, I'm more willing to say, all right, you know, I'm sorry this causes me to give up the flower of my naivete and my, my willingness to believe in, in hearts and flowers and dreams and all that. But there's a lot of people in the world trying to screw other people. And that informs my attitude. So if I look at narrative addiction, I know, for example, that a certain number of cases, you might find that cops do something bad, might hurt someone in the process and cover up the fact that they did it. And that person might be a person of color. And that does happen. And it happens to people who are not people of color. It happens to white people. And they're jerks. Other times, a whole lot of the time, someone comes at them, comes at the cop and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to shoot you unless you shoot me. And the cop shoots them. Then there's an investigation afterwards. And you're like, okay, well, that was bad. That was bad for everybody. That was bad for the person who was probably disturbed in some way, bad for the cop who had to react in a manner that put his or her life in danger. By all means, go investigate it and make sure that everything happened the way you say it happened, that you told the truth, do all that. But it's the verification process that is what matters. And a lot of times people, they love stories. They, they love the first thing they hear. There was an incident at the South Hill Mall that is a perfect example of how information flows. So I was working Saturday, basically running a bunch of high school sports copy, but also monitoring breaking news. I'm working from home. I'm sitting outside and for about half an hour from like 9.45 to 10.15, sirens nonstop out where I live. And I'm like, what's going on here? What is going on? It's still going. This is a big deal. And finally, I see a online statement from the Puyallup cops that they've gone to South Hill Mall at the Macy's. They have heard all these reports of there's an active shooter inside the mall, which would be a huge story, right? An enormous news story that you would instantly have to cover. But as it turned out, it was a guy lighting off fireworks inside the mall, inside the Macy's to scare people, create a whole bunch of smoke and alarms and then steal some jewelry. So it was a ploy. It was a diversion. And, and that's a miniaturized example of how misinformation can flow even by deliberate intent from the person who wants people to think, okay, someone's out here with a machine gun. Oh my God. So the first thing you do as a journalist, and hopefully as a, as a non-journalist too, is don't spread the bad information before you check it. If you see someone saying, I think there's a shooter at the mall, you don't say that. You don't say, hey, everybody, there's a shooter at the mall. You say, okay, cops, is that right? Is that true? Call me back. We need to know. This is what we're hearing. That's what a journalist does. And you get the answer, you print the answer, they say, it sounded like that, but really it's this. And then that's journalism. That's a little tiny piece of reporting. And what you want is outlets, sources that do that work. That's how it works. So it sounds like the principle of verify, verify, verify is <laughs> really key in this process. Sometimes you hear trust, but verify, and sometimes people trust and maybe never get around to verification. But verifying the truth, verifying what's actually happened is, is key within the discipline of journalism, but also within the discipline of being a listener, learner, basic member of society. So would you mind, I'm sure there's people who aren't as familiar with the process of, of a story happening, uh, getting a story, publishing a story, like writing a story, publishing a story. What does that process look like for reputable sources, for brands, like you mentioned earlier? Here's how it goes in my paper. And, and this is basically how it works, although you know there, there might be little bits of detail that have changed here and there. But we meet in the morning. Right now, we're meeting remotely. And, and there's about 25 of us in this morning news meeting. A couple of editors, me included, leading the meeting. A couple of dozen reporters. And reporters all say, well, I'm working on this today. I'm going to be writing about the um, Thanksgiving meals that they're giving out in Gig Harbor. Or I am going to be writing about the bomb cyclone or the atmospheric river that's coming. I'm going to go call the National Weather Service and you know see what they say. Uh, and then the photographer will say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go work on the uh, weather story too and see what I can come up with. I'll go down to uh, the docks or the river and see if I can get some art for that. And then the reporter will go out 
or in this case, call the National Weather Service, you know, speak to a meteorologist. Meteorologists will say, well, we're, we, you know, this is what we're expecting. We're expecting this front to come in. It's going to be pretty heavy. It's going to be pretty intense. People should be careful. This is for a quick story, just so we're clear. Porter writes that up, sends a note to editors saying, okay, the bomb cyclone story is in. And then the editor's like, okay, I'll go take a look at that. Editor goes and looks at it. Is the grammar correct? Are the spellings correct? Is the formatting correct? Is the information valid and viable? Did you identify the source? Most of the time, reporters who have done this for any kind of time will know that they just have to do all that. So it's not going to be uh, much of a slog and we need it to go fast. So if they do all those things, then we're like, okay, we've read it, we've seen it, we've added the photo, we've looked at this, it looks good, we're going to put a headline on top of it, push the button, publish. If it's something more in-depth that takes more time, one of our reporters recently spent a, a, several weeks working on a, a story about traffic along I-5 through Tacoma and the seemingly permanent construction hassle that starts at Fife and ends at JBLM. That's a good question. I, I like that. And it's the kind of thing where editors are like, yeah, this is a good idea. And part of it, I, I know I was involved in it because we had found monitoring social media, Twitter, all those things, that it's become a joke. The traffic is a joke. And prominent people are like, oh, my God, get me out of this traffic hell. When will this be over? When will our nightmare end? And so we're like, okay, that's a story. Everybody's experiencing this. Everybody is going through this every single day. And we should write that story and we should go get answers. And we should include some of those comments from people who are, who are saying, like I called it Tacoma's new aroma. <laughs> you know, th this is what we're known for now. You can't, you, you're going to spend an hour stuck in this mess every day. And so the reporter's like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I'll, I'll go talk to the Department of Transportation. I will go talk to engineers. I will go talk to people with some historical perspective who will say, well, I-5 was built in the 1950s, you know, was never meant to handle this level of traffic. And then I'll talk to, a, you know, a planner who says, well, you know, I know people don't like it, but I need them to know that this project is scheduled to end at this time. And this one here will affect this one over there. And then, and then you're going back and saying, okay, well, how much does this cost? How much are we spending? Why does it take so long to do this? So this is a more intricate kind of a story. It takes a lot more work to write it and explain it in a comprehensible manner. And I know I was talking with him about it and a couple of other, other editors were talking with him about it and trying to decide the best way to talk about it by saying, what people want to know is when this will be over, if ever. So make sure that question is answered near the top of the story, if you can, and then how much it costs, and then why it takes so long, and then all these things. So th this is a, a more elaborate kind of a structure. It takes more collective, collaborative work to build a story like that. But that's how that goes. And don't bury the lead. <laughs> that's good. So you just walked through a, a process, a discipline within journalism, and there's other disciplines within other fields of study, whether it's science, medical field, history, you just go through, there's there's disciplines for publication. A lot of times people are, I, I found that people aren't aware of those disciplines, or there's like this idea that all writing and all <laughs> publication is equal <laughs> without that verification process. And I'll, I'll get to the question here real quick. Contrast with me, if you would, that discipline, that process of taking a story through writing to publication. And even I know like there, I've seen like retractions or corrections that happen. So it's, there's a self-correcting nature to what you're laying out to really do a good job of getting the facts and getting something presented to people. Contrast that with me to people who are finding their information, maybe first and foremost through memes or Facebook University or conspiracies that like are kind of uh, fueling wherever they're getting their info. Would you just contrast those two things with me? How do you look at that stuff? I think part of it goes back to this business of narrative addiction. In theory, I'm not saying journalism is perfect here. All right. So don't get me wrong. But in theory, we're going through it and asking at each step, okay, are we right about this? 
do we get it right? And, and that doesn't mean we always get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong. But the fact that you and your listeners know we got it wrong is kind of evidence that we admitted it. It's evidence you care about the truth. Trying to get it right. And some of those things are super simple. You know, someone emailed me over the weekend. We, we were just buried in state high school sports coverage, football, swimming, volleyball, soccer, boys, girls, just everything. In addition to Huskies, Seahawks, crack and all those things. And we get a note from someone who says, uh, in this swimming tournament story, you spelled this young woman's name wrong. It's this, not that. And I'm like, okay, all right, go fix that. You know, go fix that right now. We had another story about the uh, Point Defiance Zoo and Aquarium. And the story was accurate, but the headline, the idea of the story was that they're closing one of their aquariums for a year to, you know, do some renovations and improvements. But the, the way the headline was written, and I, you know, this wasn't me, but it made it sound like the whole zoo was closing for a year. So I get this frantic note from the um, one of the communications people at, at the zoo saying, please, 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 can you correct this? headlines so it doesn't give the impression that the zoo, the entire zoo is closing for a year. That's not what's happening. And as it happened, because I've been around this town for a while, I know that communications person. Long, long ago, I worked with her husband, who is a fine photographer at a local newspaper. So I know who this person is. I'm like, I got this, Whitney. Let me go fix it. And about five minutes later, I write the headline and say, they're closing one aquarium. you know. And then I send her a note and I say, that headline has been fixed online. Keep an eye out for it. It's going to take maybe a minute or two to stick digitally once we republish it. But hopefully that answers your question or, or addresses the concern. She's like, oh, thank you. That's so much clearer. That's a real-time example of how it should work. People who are invested in narratives point to those kinds of things, those little errors, and say, aha, you see, they're biased or they're hiding the truth or whatever. This happens all the time. And that nationalization effect coupled with the desire for attention, coupled with the erosion of journalism staffs, coupled with the effect of social media and everybody just being on top of it all the time, we're all in little matrix pods uh, getting drained of our juice by the, uh, the the robots. I realize that was that that's kind of grim. But that kind of stuff is why this nationalization distrust thing occurs because little bits get screwed up. And this is what I try to do. I'm going to do my best to go find the local media outlet that is closest to that case and not and not the little podunk one, not the one that's barely alive, but the the local daily I'm going to go there and see what they're saying. And I try not to go with the New York Times or the Washington Post in those cases, partly because I don't want the national narrative to dominate, partly because I want to honor the people who are doing the work who nobody knows mm. those places and preserve local news, because this is what happens with the national narratives. Everybody jumps in on the biggest story and says, OK, we're going to we're going to take all the attention, so to speak. So let me give you an example of this. Late 2009 later in November, a man out here shoots and kills four Lakewood police officers. Really famous, famous case. And there's a manhunt. There's, you know, it's a gigantic, horrible thing. There's, you know, all this news coverage about it. You know, I was in on it along with a whole lot of other people and covering it along with other local media, the Seattle Times, Seattle PI, TV stations, everybody's covering it. But so are the nationals. And one thing they get hooked on is the idea that this, this guy, the shooter named Maurice Clemens, now dead, was somehow let out of jail by some Pierce County judge who's soft on crime. And that was the narrative that in this case, Fox wanted to latch on to. I'm, I'm watching it unfold because I think I actually got asked onto one of those cable shows. And they're just pushing this. They're just pushing this idea. This is the story that they want to tell. They're not asking what's the story. They're saying, can we tell this one? And I'm like, if you think Pierce County judges are soft on crime, you are out of your head. You don't know what you're talking about. This is a shot and a beer town. You're out of your mind. They are not soft on criminals here, but you want that narrative. So you're pushing it. 
And that happens over and over and over. The national thing is, let me distill this down to its simplest possible hero, villain, black and white components and go from there, because that's the easier story to tell. And that's what you should watch out for. This is the thing I was mean, mentioning to you earlier, because at the very beginning of this discussion, before we started recording, uh, there was a brief reference to QAnon. So I did a long investigative story that continues to get read online back in 2004 about a internet cyber cult that is kind of a actual precursor to QAnon, which has adopted some of the things from this thing I did. The story was about this individual who called herself Dove of Oneness. And she had a couple of hundred thousand readers online who sub subscribed to her newsletter. And she would write these weekly reports and sometimes phone recordings that always began with the same thing. Hello, dear friends in White Nights. And she would be expounding on this very elaborate theory that a secret law was passed by Congress in the year 2000 called NISARA, N-E-S-A-R-A, the National Economic, Social, and Recovery Act or something like that, which erased all credit debt, you know, ended wars, as well as provided the money associated with old investments that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people were waiting for to be delivered that had been stalled until the passage of the secret law could be announced. I know that was pretty elaborate. What Dove of Oneness did was say, all right, you know, the, the announcement is just about to happen. It would be like every single week. It's just about to happen, friends. I have sources at the highest levels, highest levels who can say that our resources are about to be delivered. And then we get 9-11. And so what Dove does is say, oh my God, 9-11 was a coordinated, deliberate inside job by the government to prevent the announcement of the secret law and prevent the delivery of your money. I am working on this and I will keep you posted and informed. Send donations. Okay. And she would write these things about confirmations, proof of the secret law that changes the currency. Someone in a bank saw someone saying something that was happening and that's proof, friends. Or someone asked former Congressman Dennis Kucinich whether this law was important. Yes, he said, it is important. And it's clearly Dennis Kucinich going, whatever the hell you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very important. So this thing was ensnaring people. And I got a tip about it. So I began to do some, some intense research. This took me months to figure out who this person is. And I finally figured out her real name. Her name was Shaney Goodwin. She lived in Shelton in her mother's double wide, just typing on her computer, had all these outstanding tax bills. Her address was a, a P.O. box uh, in Olympia, which I found. I found her name and did some research on her and, and realized that in the 60s, she had been the queen of the McClary Bear Festival, which was a local pageant. And there was a picture of her in the paper looking resplendent with her tiara and her banner. And she had since gotten involved with Jay-Z Knight and Ramtha and Yelm. Subsequent to that, she had gotten involved with this con artist in Iowa who had done a multi-level marketing scheme that promised all these people money if they invested. And it was called Omega. It was a transparent fraud that led to convictions, but Shaney Goodwin changes her online name to Dove of Oneness, hooks on to this scam, which was based on promising people money that, you know, oh, it's going to come. It's, oh, it's going to come. And she just added her spin to it and kept it going and turned it into the secret law story and had people all over the planet following it, waving picket signs at The Hague in the Netherlands, demanding that the world court announce the secret law. One of her followers donated enough money for her to buy panel trucks to drive around D.C. saying, announce the secret law, announce the secret law. And I wrote this big story, won an award. Documentary filmmakers came along and made a film about it, about the people who were still waiting for the secret law. And I've talked since then to people who have told me that QAnon has absorbed this Nisara thing and added it to that mythology. So that's that's the genesis of how this kind of stuff happens. And it goes back to the narrative addiction. There's a term for this that is especially important for faith-based communities. 
and it's called affinity fraud. The original financial multi-level marketing scheme was hatched in a set of Iowa churches by a guy who just knew how to talk smooth and knew that if he went to all the churches and said, well, I just, I'm just a, a country farmer here and I learned about this multi-level marketing stuff. So if you invest, we can all make a lot of money together. And they lapped it up like cats and saucers of milk. And that affinity fraud thing is common to all of these types of of schemes, going into places where people are generally like-minded, telling them a story they want to hear, getting them all into it. And the horrible thing is that admitting that they've been fooled is the hardest, hardest thing in the world because it's about shame and nobody wants to admit that. Sorry, that was long. Oh, that was so good. It just has a lot of different things firing my brain. I'll start with just a few questions or observations. So a fraudulent story takes advantage of maybe a weakness in a certain tribe's narrative, a proclivity in a certain tribe of people, a certain tribe of thinking, whether it's religious, political, some kind of ideology. Absolutely. And that fraudulent story turns into like eventually people like showing up at the steps of some larger organization, believing this fraudulent story wholeheartedly. Yes. And they've, they've probably never met the person who originated the story. Like, how do you, how do you process that? I remind myself that Alex Jones and Gwyneth Paltrow are selling the same male enhancement product under different names on their websites. I remind myself that people's desire to believe things is so powerful. And all you can do in some ways is just, and I, I certainly have people close to me who have occasionally fallen into these kinds of traps. And the best thing I can do is not mock or deride people, no matter how tempting it is. Oh my God, so tempting. But if you care about a person, if you have some emotional connection to them and you're just not willing to write that person off, and a lot of people are, a lot of relationships have been destroyed by this kind of tribalism, then my best tactic is to just be very slow, very straight, not include a lot of mockery on top of it and say, well, uh, you know, that one's not true. Here's the proof. That one's not true. Here's why. And even then you can get sucked into second level arguments where it, where it might be like, oh, well, that source that you provided that had the fact check is biased too. And then you're like, okay, I am not omnipotent here, but I can tell you that I believe in Occam's razor. And that is the simplest answer is usually right. And the really elaborate answer that you're advancing where there's this whole network of evil people all engaged in this thing that's been covered up that they'd all have to be lying about that's less likely it's like people who argue that shakespeare wasn't shakespeare he was actually some count or baron and the secret has been hidden for 400 years you know okay yeah that's a cool story bro <laughs> but come on there's nothing there you got nothing you want to believe this thing there was a simple example a couple of months ago with a relative of mine who was convinced that uh, the U.S. had abandoned all these dogs leaving Afghanistan, army dogs, you know, how dare they? And it took several citations to establish with the military equivalent of the Humane Society, the, the Rescue Dog Association of the Army or whatever it was, I can't remember exactly what all this was, to tell this person, no, that's not true. They got all their military dogs out of there. Some Afghan dogs who were not part of the military team indeed were not rescued by this military group, but that's, you know, they, they live there, you know, and it, it turns into this kind of, it's not as, as clean as you want it to be when you get sucked into these narratives. You want that, here's Thanos, and there's the Avengers, and that's it. And it's like, okay, come on. And it just so happens to affirm my tribe's views. Yeah. How important do you think it is for people to be willing to be challenged, be willing to be wrong, be willing to hear hard truths in our day and age? I think it's huge. I think it's hugely important. But I think that people do have to be willing to do that. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, I'm open-minded. I read a whole bunch of sources that confirm what I already believe. And it's like, okay, no, that's not it. It's going to be something else. But I think part of it is reading widely. Part of it is venturing into the, into the other side's territory to see what they're talking about and looking for the people, wherever they are, who are measured and not shouting. A lot of this kind of stuff is tone. A lot of the debates we're having involve, well, I mean, you're not going to persuade me by mocking me or ridiculing me. 
you know, okay, well, neither are you. You know, if you're honking your horn and screaming at me and challenging me and then saying, oh, does that make you mad? You're going to you're going to mock me now. It's like, OK, this is just a toxic situation. I'm just stepping away from you. You know, if if we could just wave a magic wand, you know, and you were to wake up five years from now and let's just say the local community the, or our county and maybe it's even spreading nationally, uh, maybe it's even spreading globally. But if you if like a wand was waved and you woke up. What would you love to see in the dynamics of how people have information intake and then from that discourse? So intake and outgo, intake, and then how they have discourse with those around them in the community. Well, in this, in this particular version of Utopia, there's no Facebook. I just think it goes away. I think all of our phones would be less effective, just not work as well, and we'd be forced to talk to each other. A lot less digital interaction and a lot more face-to-face human interactions. So we're not all like those baddies in the Wally cartoon running around on their motorized chairs. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's a weird thing that people said online worlds would bring us together. And it actually turns out they've, they've driven us apart. I would curtail a lot of that kind of activity uh, if I could wave my magic wand. You mentioned what sounded like a parable, Alchem's razor. Would you mind uh, taking us out with that thought or that parable? going to put me on the spot. I don't know if I'm if I'm going to get it right, but it's it's basically the idea that the simpler answer is usually the right answer. And it kind of comes from math and philosophy. It's just the idea that if you are being carried along on a current of wow, this is getting more and more and more complicated. This rabbit hole is getting deeper and deeper and deeper. Think about Occam's razor and say, well, wait a minute. I think there was a right turn right at the start of this tunnel that might have actually led to the hearth and the fireplace and a warm cup of tea. And maybe that was the better place to be. And that's kind of what I mean by Occam's razor. If it involves people drinking the blood of babies and, and uh, you know, hiding all of these activities at a pizza parlor, you might be wrong. Just consider that possibility that you might be wrong. And it's not too late to just say, eh. Yeah, I got that wrong. I got that wrong. I'm going to go grab a burger and it'll be all right. That's a good word. I, um, I'm hearing a little bit of is one, if you could see other people start to think a little bit more like a journalist in a sense. And journalism from the sense I'm getting from you would be a curiosity, humility, desire to, to learn, <laughs> um, but also ruthlessly examine for the truth. Would you want the, just a little bit more of that embodiment? I would. And I mean, I hope, I hope that that's what it would be. And I think even among journalists, there are times when people fall prey to this, all these things we've been talking about. And, and I, even among journalists, there are narrative addictions or addictions to, you know, I'd rather have it be the spectacular thing than the prosaic thing. And I think you got to guard against that as a journalist. You got to guard against the idea that the story is too good to check. And that happens a lot. We love stories, but you have to love facts too. And the, and the more attractive the facts are, the more willing you have to be to check them to make sure they're real. Yeah. The more unchecked a story is, the more sensational it can be. But the more checked a story, the more grounded in reality. In the next five years, what do you think the biggest challenge for journalism is going to be, or what are the biggest challenges in the next five years for journalism? They're mostly economic. I actually think that there's a little bit of light that I wouldn't have guessed was there maybe two or three years ago, but I think there's some good news there. I've certainly seen it because when I left my organization a couple of years ago, or March of 2019, I was pretty gloomy about the future of the industry. And it's not that There's still a lot of problems, but I think people are figuring out that subscriptions rather than ads are kind of the main driver now. The only danger with that is the same kind of tribalism as before. Well, you know, make sure you tell me just what I want to hear and nothing else, or I won't subscribe. There has to be a commitment to, all right, we have to be willing to confront unpleasant truths here, not just tell you what you want to hear. But I think there is reason to believe that locally centered news organizations are going to be a little better off than they have been over the last decade. I think they're 
just a little better. I think the Nationals will continue to be fine. I think they are going to have to figure out whether eyeballs and anger alone are the only ways to thrive and succeed. Because I don't, I don't think that's a sustainable model. We only have so much anger and outrage to tap before we get tired. I actually think that's what happened in 2020. I don't think it was particularly about the individuals. I think it was about, okay, I'm just so tired. So if journalism, both national and the local, can figure out how to get past that, how to get past this business of just, you know, writing everything to make you mad, then I think, I think we'll be okay. And I, I'm certainly trying to do that. And I'm seeing some evidence that it works. Mm, that's good. How do you deal with people who say, oh, you just work for big pharma? Finding ways to dismiss your discipline, your, your vocation. First of all, what I'll tend to do with those people is say, look, everything you're saying is being recorded. I'm just doing what I'm told. No, uh, it, it depends on whether the other person is trying to argue in good faith. And that's a, a judgment call. But if they are open to a discussion and not just throwing bombs at me, then I'm perfectly willing to engage. I'm perfectly willing to say, why do you say that? And if they say, well, all you do is tell this story about Fauci is God or whatever, I'm going to say, well, I don't know. I mean, he's got a degree and I don't. What would you have me do? Am I supposed to ignore the majority of epidemiologists? Or, you know, I understand that Pfizer and Purdue Pharma and all these people have some heavy duty accountability issues. I think, you know, the, the, the opioid crisis is due to big pharma, but that doesn't mean I'm in their pocket. They're not paying me, but mostly it's just, are you willing to have the discussion or do, you, or do you just want to vent? Because I'm not your venting platform, you know, take it somewhere else if that's what you want to do. If you want to talk to me, we can talk. That's how I do it. I want to thank Sean Robinson. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your wisdom. You're most welcome. Nice to be here and talk with you. Thanks for letting me, uh, let me be here. You've been listening to Common Grace, a Whitewater podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or have suggestions for future topics, send an email to info at whitewaterchurch.org. Thanks for listening.